evening I'd like to familiarize you with the beginnings of the contemplation of feeling. We'll be moving into the fifth and sixth contemplation. Um, but before we do that, I just want to see if there's any, if there are any loose ends just about what we're doing, especially uh, as we've moved into the fourth contemplation and using this much more one-pointed kind of attention. Anything that's on your mind about it, anything you'd like to report or questions, and as always, uh, your experience with using the breath, not only in sitting, but during the week in the midst of action. Anything on anyone's mind? I know you'd rather sit, but you have to do some of these things. I don't know why, but it seems that we do have to. If we're going to learn, get a, a little introduction to this uh, sutta. Anyone having any experience with the uh, using attention? In, in a much more one-pointed way? Is that becoming is it difficult or uh, unappealing to some people? Is it helpful for others? I wish I were psychic, then I wouldn't have to bother you, but I'm not, so you're going to have to tell me. It's another nice practice. It's not to be compared in, a, in an invidious way at all. But in terms of what we're trying to accomplish, it's by and large not as helpful. Yeah. What did you do? Mm-hmm. Right. So you, are you comfortable now in doing it? seems to be some relationship that is you give the mind some opportunity to do other things to roam about to be more comprehensive many people are reporting this I myself found that are any of you tasting any peace at any level of peace at all in the practice at home or here it's okay if you raise your hand people won't hate you we're all just you know we're all Yes, at least one person. No one else has had any peace at all. Oh. <laughs> I know it's called attachment to peace. It happens a lot with meditators. We get attached to quiet. The disease of quietude. We have to learn how to go in and out. You know, when it's time to get quiet, good. When it's time to talk, talk. 
let it go. It will come back. It comes back a lot easier if you don't cling to it. Okay, so I'm assuming that things are going smoothly, right? Or if they're, everyone knows what's, what to do and you're busy doing it. Okay. Um, let's go down to the walking room and do some walking. But before we do it, I'm going to show you with my hands. It's a, a somewhat of a variation of what we've already been doing. I'd like you to try it. Some of you may like it, some of you won't. Uh, remember, uh, what we're doing in working with this sutta is on uh, as best as we can, considering that we only have two hours and then everyone is apart for the whole week. This is ideally taught on a retreat uh, with big chunks of uninterrupted time and quiet. I mean, usually it's done alone so that you don't, you, you don't have to even coordinate yourself with anyone else. But if it's an uh, anapanasati, if that's what you're doing, then it's a definite advantage to be using the breath in everything that you're doing. Which is not to say that other forms of walking meditation that some of you may really like are in any way inferior or that this is supposed to replace them. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is for purposes of extracting the essence of this sutta, where, which the whole point is to, for the, the breath to be a thread that runs throughout, you got a question about threads, right? Breath is thread? Well, or just a statement. Okay. Uh, it helps to use it whenever we can. And so we've been doing a kind of a, uh, to refresh your memory, the walking has been on the in-breath, by and large. You, you raise up and then you come down on the out-breath. And some of you are uh, finding that useful. And if you don't like what we're going to do tonight, you're welcome to go back to it. This. Uh, variation on that theme uh, actually is a little bit better for samadhi work because it's more precise. Those of you who have been doing Mahasi Saido type, very slow walking, this will be a piece of cake for you. Others will probably have a nervous breakdown or feel it's too mechanical or something like that. Okay. Uh, I'm going to show you downstairs, but it, uh, it's really not difficult, but at first it takes some relearning as so many of these things do. As you you see you're having to give up things to take up on new things. Okay. This is a foot. Okay. Uh, you stand, you, you remain standing. Uh, and this one, just as in the other one, although here you'll see it much more clearly, I think, you let the breath take the lead. The breath is what leads us around. Okay. So you stand for as long as you like, a few, few moments, and then uh, you wait for an in-breath. Let's say there's an in-breath, and the heel just raises up on the in-breath. It's hard to do with hands. Yeah. Okay, so I have to do it with my foot and my hand. Okay. So, uh, on the in-breath, when, whenever the in-breath comes, you coordinate with it so that as the in-breath begins, so does the raising of the heel begin. Okay? And then you let the out-breath just go. You pause. You're not moving. So it's, you're breathing in and the heel raises up. And then you just let the exhalation happen naturally. And then when the next inhalation comes, you don't make it come. When it comes, then you raise up the foot and place it. It's not fully on the floor. And you pause. And only when the exhalation comes, then you finish the step. 
case, on the exhalation. So it's similar in some ways. Then, in the meanwhile, the other foot is there, and, you only, and when the next breath, the next inhalation comes, the heel raises up, and then you let the out-breath go. The out-breath happens, you're paused. And then on the ne- next in-breath, you raise up and move part of the way. You place down, but the foot is not flat. And you wait until the exhalation comes and come down again. Uh, so that what r- is required is extreme attention to the breath and no forcing whatsoever. And at first, it, many people do experience it as somewhat mechanical. After a while, you can get extremely concentrated. You may cover hardly any ground at all. That's not important. But you'll see that the breath will be very, very prominent in this kind of walking meditation. So I'd like for us to try it because I'd like to help us get as calm as is possible under the conditions that we have so that um, we can begin to become familiar with uh, five and six, the contemplations, which come out of a very calm and concentrated mind. Stationing your attention at the nostrils. That recedes somewhat in the background. as you listen to some words about what we're moving into. First, I'll read the contemplations themselves. themselves. Five, the fifth one. The first four, if you recall, have had to do with the body. Various ways of looking at the breath and the body. Now we're moving into feelings, Vedana, very, very important term in Buddhist psychology, sometimes translated as feeling. The fifth contemplation reads, I am breathing in and feeling joyful. I'm breathing out and feeling joyful. This is how the yogi practices. This feeling joyful, the term for it is piti, P-I-T-I. I'll be using that term a lot. Joyful sort of gets at it, but it's not adequate. In the sixth, I'm breathing in and feeling happy, which is sukha. Sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Dukkha is unhappy. Sukha is happy. I'm breathing in and feeling happy. I'm breathing out and feeling happy. The yogi practices like this. Now, I'm not asking you at this moment to pretend to be joyful or happy. Rather, be with the breath and hear what has to be said. This next was called tetrad, or a set of contemplations, four. We'll only touch upon the first two tonight. 
having to do with feelings, flows naturally out of the development of our work in the first four. So the work with the length of the breath, getting to know the impact of the different kinds of breath on the body, becoming a bit more familiar with the whole body and the relationship between breathing and the body. If you recall in the, the fourth contemplation, calming the breath in this one-pointed attentiveness is a very good way to calm the breath. And the breath is conceived of as a body conditioner. And perhaps you've seen some of this. As the breath goes, so goes the body, especially in regard to this calming. As the breath becomes more calm, fine, the body begins to do the same thing. And in doing this practice, which is a samadhi practice, which many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with, more and more, as you're able to continuously pay attention to the in-breath and the out-breath, as our attentiveness sticks to the in-breath and the out-breath, doesn't slip off so much, and continuity develops, both PT which can be called joyfulness or rapture, and sukha, which can be called happiness, quite naturally start to grow out of the concentrated mind. So you have the, ha- the happiness of samadhi. There are many kinds of happiness in this world. And as you all know in our practice, we're learning how to pay attention to whatever turns up. A lot of it is not so happy, maybe even awful, but also some of it is marvelous. And we're learning how to maintain a balanced mind so that we can be even-minded, we can be with whatever is there. And as this becomes developed, as our samadhi starts to take shape, we find that we're able to nourish our own minds with the joys of meditation. This is very important. Every yogi has to learn how to nourish. We all have to learn how to nourish our own mind. Nourish it with joy. And such a special joy that comes out of a concentrated, stable, meditative mind. What we're doing is, first of all, we're seeing that there's a happiness that lies within. As all the divergent energies of the mind are gathered together around the breath, unifying that energy, it's possible to taste joy and happiness. with increased intensity and depth and continuity.
so that five and six develop out of one through four. If you've been doing your work all along, little by little, you can begin to see, even if it's just the breath here or there, some joy and some happiness. We'll be more specific about what that means in a few moments. Both piti and sukha have to do with absorptions, that as the mind becomes more absorbed, more concentrated, sometimes technically referred to as jhanic development, the development of the jhanas, or the different levels of absorption. As this develops, PT and sukha become available to us. Now, even if the jhanas are not fully developed, at whatever level, partially so, there's usually a degree of PT and sukha which would be proportionate to the calming that we've accomplished that can be available to us and can be used for our practice here with contemplation five and six. So we need to get enough PT and sukha to be able to carry out this contemplation on joy and on happiness. And that eventually, quite naturally, comes out of the flowering of steps one through four. Now when I say piti, or joy, this has various levels and there are different traditional schemas which characterize these levels of joy. One simple one is it ranges from contentment, the feeling of contentment through satisfaction, and then finally to rapture. When it becomes really intense and we come to the depth of rapture, it can, the entire mind and body can be suffused with joy, permeated. Now, a characteristic of this kind of joy, of piti, is that it is exciting and stimulating. When this excitement and stimulation gets tranquilized, falls away, you have sukha, you have happiness. Now the sukha, this quality of happiness, has been there all along, but it's been obscured by joy, which is much more powerful, active. So that all the different levels of piti, from the very beginnings, which some of you, perhaps everyone in the room has already tasted, they're stimulating. They're 
they have to do with excitement, and they stimulate the mind, they even excite it. Where sukha has the opposite effect, it calms and soothes. So what we're calling happiness, that is, which grows out of this more exciting kind of joy and rapture, has the opposite effect of calming and soothing. And what we will do in these contemplations is that as soon as some degree of piti or joy becomes available to you, that becomes our meditation object, the joy itself. So far, our focus has been on breathing. It's been on the length of the breath or the fineness of breathing or the whole body. But now we're moving into the realm of feeling And when joyful feelings come up, we contemplate them while breathing in and breathing out. So we remain within the coherent frame of reference of anapanasati. We contemplate piti with each in-breath and each out-breath. We take it as the new object of attention without throwing away the breath, maintaining that tie to the breathing. Now, PT, though joyful, can sometimes be experienced as having certain effects on the mind which even make it quiver or tremble or shake. So the different degrees of contentment and satisfaction and rapture also are stimulating to varying degrees. So our job here, similar to when we contemplated the long breath and the short breath, is to get to know this joy, this piti, to see the various flavors of it, the various intensities, the effects it has on the body and now especially on the mind. We're moving more and more into the mind. And just as when we were looking at the different kinds of breath, like long and short, and interested in seeing the impact that it had on the body, now we're looking at piti or joy or rapture. We're especially interested in how it conditions the mind. 
as we begin to know the dimensions of piti, it's heaviness or lightness, sometimes it's coarse, sometimes it's relatively fine. You'll feel that expressed in the body and in the breath. You may see that it conditions even the kinds of thoughts that we have. As this kind of joy surfaces, simply through the power of samadhi, you may see that the kind of thoughts that come up vary. And so part of getting to know piti or joy is getting to see how the body and the mind are without it. And then when it arises, perhaps seeing the impact that it has as a conditioning agent. How it conditions the mind to be one way or another. As the PT becomes developed and remains around long enough to be an object of contemplation, it becomes a very enjoyable and fulfilling kind of practice. And so we contemplate this rather active and stimulating kind of joy with each in-breath and with each out-breath, which remains constant no matter what else we're doing. Now at a certain point, the energy of PT runs itself down. Its stimulating effect, which obscures the sukha, or happiness, falls away and what you find is a very soothing and calm kind of happiness. Relative to the PT, it's much more fine. And then that becomes the object of contemplation. We get to know sukha, this soothing and calm kind of happiness, a real lightness of the heart. It can be very, very quiet deafeningly quiet. We come to know it as well, the various flavors. So we nourish ourselves. Very helpful in practice to be able to bring forth a kind of joy and happiness when we would like to, as that becomes a more consistent possibility in our practice. It has a tremendous impact on our life, not simply, of course, helping us to practice vipassana, but the kind of contentment and fulfillment makes us easier to live with. easier for ourselves to live with ourselves and to live with others.
not as needy for the happiness that we think comes from only others. And you could say the contemplative life has begun. At that point, you don't need any coach like me to encourage you to practice. Now the development of these factors, which comes out of the very simple placement of attention at the nostrils, feeling the in-breath and the out-breath, much as we've been doing. Will give us a taste of a kind of happiness that's quite extraordinary. And part of our practice is learning what it is, learning how to enter into it, how to participate fully, with it, and then, we're not at that point yet, how to let it go. What a dirty trick. Developing such happiness only then to have to learn how to let go of it. But that will be an important part of this contemplation. And just one final point about the relationship between pity, which is quite apparent, stimulating, active, and sukha, which is very subtle, calm, soothing. that sometimes when the mind becomes very, very calm, the PT will take over again. It's very powerful and can easily overwhelm this very subtle kind of happiness. And our way of minimizing that is simply to be very attentive the sukha when we have it. It's a very strenuous and delicate kind of attentiveness. I don't have one word for it. The strenuous is, stre- strenuous is not a strain in the sense of force. It definitely requires our best. And it's very, very delicate so that we're with each moment of this delicate kind of happiness. And although at that point it can feel quite automatic and very easy, it's not as if you're trying to concentrate, concentration just flows, it's very important to stay awake. So that subtle kind of happiness can grow and remain stable. What I would like to suggest for the remainder of this sitting and during the week 
just practice as you practice our samadhi practice don't go hankering after either rapture or happiness if it turns up if you feel a fair amount of what you might call joy then learn how to very gracefully switch so that now the joy itself becomes the contemplation and the breath also gracefully drifts to the background a bit and so we contemplate joy with each in-breath and each out-breath we get to know joy as was suggested just by paying attention our practice has both training and study involved, learning. The training is the carrying out of these repetitive activities over and over and over again. And the learning is catching glimpses of the ways of nature. As we train ourselves, we learn about a segment of nature as it expresses itself in us. Now, if you feel that there's no real joy or calm to speak of, that, is, that you can take on, take up as an object, fine, don't worry about it. Just practice, do the samadhi practice. The day comes when more and more you will have access. To both piti and sukha, joy and happiness. And then you'll know what to do. You simply absorb that into your practice. Let me read to you from an ancient commentary. It's a simile. Please keep meditating. Helping us understand the relationship between rapture and happiness between piti and sukha. Rapture is like a weary traveler in the desert in summer who hears of or sees water or a shady wood. That's piti. Ease or happiness or sukha is like his enjoying the water or entering the forest shade. For a man who, traveling along the path through a great desert and overcome by the heat, is thirsty and desirous of drink, if he saw a man on the way, would ask, Where is water? The other would say, Beyond the wood is a dense forest with a natural lake. Go there and you will get some. He, hearing these words, would be glad and delighted. 
and as he went would see lotus leaves, etc., fallen on the ground and become more glad and delighted. Going onwards, he would see men with wet clothes and hair, hear the sounds of wild fowl and peafowl, etc., see the dense forest of green, like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the natural lake. He would see the water lily, the lotus, the white lily, growing in the lake. He would see the clear, transparent water. He would be all the more glad and delighted, would descend into the natural lake, bathe and drink at pleasure, and his oppression being allayed, he would eat the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorn himself with the blue lotus, carry on his shoulders the roots of the mandalika, ascend from the lake, put on his clothes, dry the bathing cloth in the sun, and in the cool shade where the breeze blew over ever so gently, lay himself down and say, Oh, bliss! Oh, bliss! Thus should this illustration be applied. The time of gladness and delight from when he heard of the natural lake and the dense forest till he saw the water is like rapture having the manner of gladness and delight at the object in view. The time when after his bath and drink, he laid himself down in the cool shade, saying, Oh bliss, oh bliss, is the sense of ease or happiness or sukha, grown strong, established in that mode of actually enjoying the taste of the object. So the PT has a certain excitement when you find that there's water. It's like that. It's joyful, exciting, stimulating. And the happiness of sukha, or the soothing, peaceful happiness of sukha, is the actual partaking of the water and all the ease that comes from that. Okay. Any questions? Anything on your mind? Anything about the experiences you're having? Any questions about how to work during the week? Well, it's central. The, the breath is central, and you, st- you have to pay, you have to be in touch. Uh, it isn't that kind of noticing because it's more than one object. Uh, you're in touch with both, but you have to be very, very in touch with the breathing. The breathing leads the way, and so you really have to be with the breathing. That's why it's useful for this kind of practice. It's much more an extension of it than many other forms of walking meditation. Anyone find... Now, at first, the kind of walking we did might seem artificial and mechanical and so forth. Did anyone find any value in it? You have to do it for a while to see its value. You did? It's very helpful if you ever find yourself on retreat and in a small room. Many retreat centers, you're just given a little, little space. You can do this... You don't need much space for this. You can really go for quite a long time and 
it has nothing to do with a lot of space and, and go deeply. Yeah. I understand. If you blow it in this one, it's pretty obvious. I mean, you get immediate feedback. You're just not really doing it. Yeah. I'm not suggesting to do this, but I was so taken by that coordination being affected that afterwards I was I felt frustrated that I couldn't keep as much concentration at the nostrils, and I thought, well, what can I do? Maybe if I move my finger back and forth, you know, going in and out with the breath in that same kind of coordination, maybe I can capture the same thing. So it was just, you know, trying to capture that thing again. Something else to let go of. Yeah. Every time we do that, we suffer, <laughs> no matter what it is. Um, it's very good for samadhi practice. Well, you saw that. You can get very, very calm very quickly. And then just go to the sitting. Don't, don't try to take it with you. It's too, uh, it's too much... Uh, too bureaucratic or something, <laughs> too precise. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not drawn to it, and you'd rather do the other form that we've been doing, fine, it doesn't matter. Um, look, you heard uh, me ta- say some things, and I just read a description about some very deep and profound states of joy and peace. Uh, you may not be tasting them right now. It's okay. You know, don't feel badly about that. Uh, I have to move through, we have to get through these 16, you know, and so uh, this is just sort of a tongue taste, tongue tip taste, whatever that phrase is, to give you a sense of the sutta, and some of you may want to really make this your whole practice, and others of you will take different pieces of it and go back to practices that you already like or that you're continuing to do right now. Uh, To give you a sense, though, of how important this kind of... uh, ability to nourish yourself on this kind of happiness is. There are seven factors of enlightenment. One of them is piti. Obviously the Buddha uh, would not make that a factor of enlightenment if it weren't that important. I mean, it's important for, uh, for a higher happiness to be tasted. This is not enlightenment. But it's a big, big help in everything that you want to do, is to be able to have a place, a genuine sanctuary, portable. You take it with you. And it isn't going to come from heaven, you know. It's going to come through work by on a daily basis. Coming back to what you're doing. Remember, uh, because we're not in monasteries or by and large not doing long retreats over and over again, it's absolutely imperative that we develop samadhi in action. If you think you're going to sit, let's say, an hour a day, as some of you do, or two hours a day, or more, uh, and develop the kind of samadhi that can take us to these exquisite places, I don't think it's realistic, unless you've done a lot of practice already. But it's not hopeless, because what, it, what re- is required is that just as, let's say, if a, a, a retreatant has to be attentive from early morning to late at night, if you're out at Barry, so do we. And now it's, let's say, at your work, it's really doing things in an undivided way, talking and listening, or you're working with your hands, or uh, all of the uh, routine activities and 
domestic life. Uh, the pra- it, now, this is not uh, special. It has, this is not unique to Anapanasati. This is just the teachings of the Buddha. It's mindfulness. The core of the whole thing is mindfulness. The breath is to help us with that. Getting to know uh, rapture and peace is not also not unique to Anapanasati. These are uh, places in the mind that you will come to, no matter what school of Vipassana you're attracted to. It's not, it has nothing to do with technique. It's a place that, that one comes to from practice. So what I would suggest uh, during the week is that um, remember the first four uh, practices are not obsolete. It's not like we've passed that and now we just go on to the big stuff. Uh, you can be doing one through four for the rest of your life. I, I mean, no matter how uh, deep your practice goes, you may at times feel like some of you have felt just the, how helpful it is, as you described it, of just that whole breath, just being aware of the whole breath and the whole body, a more spacious, comprehensive kind of attention. Helping the mind and body to settle down a bit and then becoming more one-pointed. That's one good way to work. Start off, let's say, if you're sitting for an hour, the first phase might be a more comprehensive kind of attention, any of the ways that we've done. And then as you feel yourself calm down a bit, then go right to the samadhi work directly. Don't worry about um, PT and sukha. Let them take care of themselves. They come naturally out of this aiming your attention at the breath and staying there. It's not that you have to do something special for that to come. You just have to do our basic job. Just do it. Do that job. And all these other things, that's the soil out of which it grows. Like a mushroom, you know, it comes out of the soil. This will grow out of you. If you don't do it, it won't. I, I mean, I can't be sentimental about it. What can I say? There are a lot of people who read all these books, and if you're one of them, hear this. And you get all these wonderful fantasies about meditative spiritual fantasies. And then you get disappointed when you don't taste them. Well, maybe the Buddha was a liar or deluded, but maybe he wasn't. And maybe what it is is you have to, to, to check and see if you're really doing the practice. See. The core of Buddhism has to do with cause and effect. And we all want the effects, but we don't want to put enough attention into the causes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.